0: week I've been uh, sick, and as some of you may have known, uh, some of you I've talked to, and it it reminds me of a conversation I had with one of my colleagues this week who was describing for me uh, what it's like interacting with her grandchildren. Uh, Every time she sees me, she knows Meredith Pam McRae, and she's always asking for Meredith's well-being and giving me some advice in terms of what to expect, and she was describing for me something that many of you parents and teachers already know. And that is that often, whenever you have small children, they come to you with all sorts of things coming down their noses, and they expect you to love them as your family. They go and kiss you and and hug you, and there's all this stuff that's still attached. And so, I appeal to you, my family, my church family, to treat me like your family. I am sick and I may sneeze and there may be things still hanging on and so give me grace and mercy the same way that you would for your dear sick children. So I appeal to you in that, with that mindset. So if I'm coughing, if the recording is all messed up for that reason, I apologize, but I know that the Lord is merciful and gracious and that you all are as well, amen? Amen. So let me bring this closer to me, you've been warned, okay, don't be grossed out. I'll try and turn away if I need to sneeze, okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Father, you are merciful. You are good. And you are teaching us how to become more and more like the people that you have called. into a faithful relationship with you. Father, I ask for your Holy Spirit to give us understanding as we uh, take our eyes from our own lives and try to see Jesus lifted up. Would you help us, Lord? Would you give us wisdom and understanding? We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. When I was 15 years old, for a brief moment, I flirted with rebellion. As I now understand it, and some of you yourselves have told me, uh, this is something that is normal for teenagers. Something happens when you reach a certain age, and you begin to act differently. I was 15 when it started to happen. Uh, I was taller, I was doing pretty good in baseball, and to be honest with you, I was feeling myself. I was getting prideful. But my mother took notice. It didn't take long. A few instances of me ignoring her directions and answering her questions with a slight tone of disrespect was enough for her to see what was happening. She had seen this before. Four years prior, my own brother, my older brother, had gone through the very same thing. And so there I was, sure of myself back straight, standing tall. When I responded to my mother in a way that she did not appreciate, I don't remember what I said. I don't remember what she asked for. All I remember is what she did next. Uh, Some of you are laughing from experience. My mother looked at me right in the eyes and said very calmly, Come here. (laughs) I walked to her very confidently. And though there was nobody else in the room, my mother reached over and whispered a series of questions in my ear. She said, Do you remember what happened to your brother when he was this age? Do you remember that he too, though he was too grown, or thought he was too grown to obey my instructions? And do you remember what I taught him, how I taught him that no matter how tall or old he got, he could still get this belt. (laughs) My knees got shaky, and I swallowed hard. I did remember. And in that moment, as that memory is flooding my mind, my mother said this last word, Don't think I won't teach you that same lesson now. It was the last time Teenage Rebellion and I ever met. (laughs) She put the fear of God in me. When she said to me, are we clear? Estamos claro? I said, yes (laughs) ma'am, crystal clear. Her warning and my brother's example was all I needed. It renewed in me a fear of respect for my mother because I saw my brother's past sins and had seen him face the consequence for it. And I did not want that to be my experience. Hebrews chapter 4 comes to us in that same spirit. It is a warning, drawing our sights back to a former generation's sin of disobedience and unbelief. And with that sin in view, it offers a strong word. Believe and obey God's word lest we find ourselves under God's judgment like the last generation. but Just as every good parent knows, an obedient life is a better life. For those who believe God, receive His promised gift of rest. The message of this passage is quite clear. Believe and obey God and you will enter God's promised rest. And this message is as relevant today as it was when it was first heard by the congregation. The church who received this message was wavering. For many in the congregation, their commitment to God had either already become or was on the verge of becoming compromised. When your neighbors are scornful of the message you received, it becomes easier to believe with only half your heart. When suffering waits outside your door, it becomes easier to go through the motions of your faith while not actually possessing Faith. The church had gotten dangerously close to what we might call a census religion. Mark the box for Christian, but trust and devotion, faith and obedience, those had become optional. What is the cost of this kind of halfway life? What, if any, danger lies before those of us who are unwilling to trust and obey God with all of our lives? The author of Hebrews has a word for you and I. In order to hear the message of this passage, I believe it is important for us to follow the author's movements, which begin a few verses before chapter 4, in chapter 3, verse 7. We are going to hear, beginning in chapter 3, and throughout our passage, a warning for you and I, that will call us to faith and obedience, and will remind us of the gift that God has offered us. Our passage this morning is in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, but I would like to begin our time a couple of verses before, in chapter 3, verse 7. So will you turn there with me? So the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. The book of Hebrews, chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. (coughs) Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For those, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter. Because of unbelief. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear. At least any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them. Because they heard. Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed entered enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he had somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formally received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For as Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. As you read along or listened... You may have gotten lost somewhere along the way. Let me give you a sort of guide as we listen to this, as we receive this message from Hebrews. The controlling purpose of this passage is to warn the people of God that only those who obey and believe God will be able to enter the rest He has offered and continues to offer His people. Let me say that again. The controlling purpose of this passage is to warn the people of God That only those who obey and believe God will be able to enter the rest he has offered and continues to offer his people. And through the prism of Psalm 95, that is the passage that is being quoted all throughout this passage in Hebrews, the author offers an example from the story of Israel to demonstrate what happens when you do not believe God. Think of our passage as a sermon based on Psalm 95. The author makes a biblical argument in order to call us to faith and obedience before God. So let's begin with the biblical example. Psalm 95, written by David, is itself a theological reflection on a particular moment in the life of Israel. Psalm 95 is going to call the people in the time of David to faith and obedience by looking back to something that happened to the people of Israel. What was it that happened? Pastor Ralph alluded to this last week, uh, but I wasn't here, so I can pretend to be uh, uh, out of the loop, right? So let's rehearse a little bit of what happened there in this particular event. What was this crisis that took place in the life of the people of God? Well, the story is found in Numbers chapter 14. You know the story. The people of God were ready to enter into the promised land. God had made a promise to Abraham, generations long before the people standing in the wilderness, ready to go into the land, that he would provide for the people a land for them. There they would have this land as an inheritance, and they would be able to thrive in that land. They would be able to experience the blessing of God. And so Moses, directed by God, picks out 12 representatives from the people of Israel. And they are to go into the land and to spy on the land and offer back a report to the people. And you know how this goes. The people are gone for 40 days, going from place to place, examining the land. They even come back with some of the fruits of the land. At first, the report is what we should expect. They say, indeed, this land is good. It is rich with great resources and blessings. Look at this fruit that we've brought to you. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. It is pouring out its blessing for its people. But there's a problem, the people said. The people who live in that land are too large and too numerous. And we will not be able to overcome them. Now, think about this. This was a people who had been rescued, who had been delivered from Egypt, the greatest superpower the world had ever known at this time. And here they are, standing after that time, after God had provided for them, protected them, been with them. They say, We cannot go further, the task is too tall us and Caleb one of the twelve stands up and says no we need to believe God God is faithful and will help us he will stand for us and with us and we will be able to receive this promised gift from God but the people did not listen to Caleb they continued to shout over him and they said to to Moses why did God lead us here We should have stayed in Egypt and died there instead of dying at the hand of the sword. This people who had been rescued by God had allowed their fear of man to turn them from God and to point the blame to him. Why would God do this? Why is he so unjust towards us? Why is he acting in an evil manner toward us? And Joshua, another one of the twelve, stands up and says, No, God is faithful. He will protect us. He is good for us. And the people, by this time, had hardened their hearts. And they picked up stones to kill Joshua and Caleb. But the Spirit of God stopped them. The glory of the Lord stopped them. And what happened to this people? What is the promise that God Gives Well, Psalm 95 tells us of that. The word of the Lord tells us that God responded to, to this rebellion, to this unbelief, by saying this generation will not enter into the land of rest that I have provided for them. They will die here in the wilderness. And for every day that they were in the land, they will spend an entire year wandering in the wilderness. Because of their hardened hearts, because of their disobedience, because of their unbelief, they will not enter my rest. Now, we have to recognize that it should not have happened this way for that generation. This was a people that had been redeemed and rescued by God from Egypt. This was a people who had seen all sorts of wonders and works in the wilderness as they were traveling up to this land. Yet, they did not hold confidently to the promise of God and allowed their fear of man to lead them down a path of disobedience. They heard the voice of God. They had seen His works. And yet, they did not believe. And as a result... The people did not receive, receive their promised rest. Verse eighteen uh, of chapter thirteen says, "And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient." So we see that they are unable to enter because of unbelief. In chapter four, the author turns her attention from toward uh, turns her attention toward the congregation and offers us a warning. Be careful that none of you follow after the wilderness generation. Look at those who came before you. If you follow their footsteps, their fate will be yours. Look at verses 1 through 3. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear. lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were united by faith. They were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. For he has said, "As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." Let me emphasize a few things from these verses. First. Notice the similarity between our experience and the experience of the generation that came before. They received good news. The promise of God was laid before them. But they did not benefit from it because they were not united by faith. There were only a few who believed God. Caleb, Joshua, and Moses. The rest were not united by faith and rejected God's word. But notice what else is the same. The promise of entering his rest still stands. We, like the people in the wilderness, stand before the promise. We are waiting for a time when the promise will become our possession. In other words, since we are also standing on this side of the promise of rest, let us be careful, fearful, that we do not fail in the same way that the wilderness generation failed. For those who believe the word of promise are then able to enter into it. But if you do not believe, you simply hear the promise. You will hear the same words the former generation heard. They shall not enter my rest. Do you hear that warning? Can you see what this passage is asking us to see? The wilderness generation heard the good news preached, but they did not believe and were denied entrance into the promised rest of God. Good news, Bible Church. Sunday after Sunday, the good news of God is preached from this pulpit. But hear me click carefully. Hearing the good news is very different than believing and obeying the good news. Let us fear, church. Least any of us would sit here and remain with the same hardened hearts that do not actually believe and obey God. Your faithful attendance does not grant you access into the promise of entering God's rest. Only those who believe enter God's rest. It is not by hearing only, but by believing in God's word. Now what exactly is the promise, this rest promise by God in Canaan? Well, first of all, we have to recognize that Canaan is a type. It is that place where the people would have rested from their enemies. They would be safe in the borders established for them by God. They will be able to enjoy God They will be able to enjoy God there as his presence would be in their midst. You see, Canaan is a place of rest. Yes, but it is only a shadow of what God was offering his people. Canaan is not the rest promise, but a place for the people of God to begin to experience a foretaste of what is still to come. Verses 4-10 through help us to see this offer of rest still remains for us today and points to a time that is yet to come. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in that way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he says, They shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God has from his. Let me summarize this point this way. Our understanding of rest begins with God who rested on the seventh day from all of his work. Our practice and longing for rest reminds us of our place before the creator of the universe. We rest because God rested. We long for rest because we are image bearers of the one who worked and then rested. The promise of rest for the people of God there in that land was a reminder of all that was lost in Eden long ago. You see, in Eden there was a perfect fellowship with God and his people. There was a perfect space, a place for people to enter into faithful life, practice, rest, and worship of God. This land, this promised land was supposed to remind the people of that place. Where everything was lost. God was was restoring what was lost when sin entered the world in Eden. In Eden there was a promise of faithful life in response to our maker. Life was going to be just as it was supposed to be. And that land, that promised land, was just a small taste of what it could be like to live in the presence of God but it was still just a small taste. It was not the actual experience of, wet, of rest. How do we know? Well, because Psalm 95 tells us this much. It tells us how David, the future king of Israel, who reigned in Jerusalem in that promised land, wrote a psalm to his people calling them to look forward to that day of rest. The book of Hebrews tells us, look, if Joshua led the people into that rest, then why would David say there is still yet a day for rest? It is because we are still waiting for that rest to come. It was only a foretaste, it was only a foreshadowing of the ultimate rest, the ultimate city that we are longing for. Notice at the end of this section, it says, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God what happened in the Sabbath. It was a reminder of the people's connection to their God. It was a day where justice reigned. It was a day where trust in God uh, prevailed. And it was a festival of worship to God. In other words, the rest that we are longing for, that place that God offers to us, that promise that is held out to us, is not only a future place that is eternal, the eternal sin, but it is also that place where we will be able to experience peace and justice, goodness and mercy. It is that place where we will be with God unhindered by sin and death, yes, where our enemies will be put down forever, the enemies of sin and death. This is the rest that God is promising to us. And that promise still remains... So what should we do? What do we do with this promise? Well, the author tells us in verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Don't allow disobedience and unbelief to keep you from that rest. And if you disobey, the word of God is able to search our hearts and lay us bare before God's judgment. That is what verses 12 through 13 are teaching us. The Word of God is able to search our hearts. No one can hide from it. The Word of God is like a two-edged sword. It is sharp enough to judge those who are unwilling to believe God and obey His words. These final verses are to us that same word of judgment that my mother offered to me. It is a warning. The Word of God warns us. It can judge us. It can lay bare our true intentions, our true need for repentance, for forgiveness, for our need in God. So how do we do this? How do we strive toward that rest? How do we respond to this warning in this passage? My voice, my voice only has a few more minutes, and that's good because I, I also only have a few more minutes. So let me give us four directions, uh, four applications from this passage. Responses to this warning. <coughs> Number one. This passage reminds us That entering into faith, entering into that rest that is offered to us, is something that we cannot do on our own. Time and time again in verse uh, 13 of of chapter 3, it says, Exhort one another as long as it is called today. It says that those who were not believing were not joined in faith together. Later on in chapter 10, the book of Hebrews will tell us not to forsake gathering together and to help one another and encourage one another in our time of need. (coughs) Brothers and sisters, if we are going to strive toward entering this rest, we are going to need one another. We are going to have to rely upon one another. We are going to need to exhort one another. Help us to see what is before us when we are struggling, when we are having difficulty. Now that means a few things. That means that honestly, we have to open ourselves to one another. We have to allow our exterior shells to fall. Uh, uh, um, uh, shell, there we go. Shells to fall down, to be vulnerable with one another. To tell one another when we are struggling. But it also means that we have a responsibility, a duty to one another, to minister to one another, to be in mutual life together, to hold one another accountable to this task. Reminded of a brother who just last week said to me, we need to meet because it is good for us. We are better men for it. That's very true. When you and I are meeting together, when we are holding one another accountable and exhorting one another in the word of the Lord, we become better for it. It is a tool in the hand of our God to develop us into those who reflect God's image. This is the way that we strive toward obedience. We need one another. Time and time again during these sermon series, we've talked about ways that we can do that for one another. Uh, we talked about being and participating in a small group. We've talked about... Uh, engaging in one-on-one relationships with one another, where uh, 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 life discipleship groups, I never know the name of that adequately, but you get the point. Life transformation groups? Life transformation groups together. These things are critical for us if we are going to strive to enter into this rest. It's not easy on our own. It's impossible on our own. We are a people of God, not a person of God. And we need to hold one another up. The second takeaway I want us to think about in this passage is for those of us who are doubting. Those of us who hear this message or hear the Word of God and find ourselves questioning God. We find ourselves weak in our faith. And I want to offer an encouragement to you. First of all, I want you to recognize... That you, just like our first uh, point of application, we cannot do this on our own. One of the things that happens when you are doubting, the the, the problem of doubt is that if you turn yourself inward, it hardens your heart and you continue down a path of disobedience and unbelief. You cannot do it on your own. So I want you to do two things if you find yourself doubting. Number one, I want you to turn to a brother and sister or sister. I want you to process that doubt, that unbelief, with someone else. Why? Because the Christ in you is weaker than the Christ in another brother. The words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in other words, when we are weak in our faith, the strong brother or sister in Christ can lift us up and encourage us. think of my friend who uh, is a colleague of mine who recently had a scare, a cancer scare. He was very fearful. He was concerned, and we were praying together about this, and he told me that his faith is very weak. He said, it has always been. But when I tell my wife what I'm struggling with, she says to me, that's okay, because if you die, you will be home with the Lord. And then he said to me, my my wife's faith has always been stronger than mine, and it's been a blessing to me. It's been a blessing because when I have wavered in my faith, he said to me, My wife has held me up. She has been a model for me to hold firm, to draw near to God in my doubt, in my questioning. So if you find yourself doubting, I want you to do the same. I want you to find a stronger brother or sister in Christ and say, my faith is weak. The second thing I want you to do is I want you to take the example that we find in the Gospel of Mark. Some of you might remember this story, but there's a story where Jesus is standing before a father whose son has a demon. And it is causing great disaster on that child's life. And no one can rid this child of the demon. And Jesus enters into the scene and the father says, if you are able, please save my son. And Jesus says, if I am able, all things are possible to those who believe. And the man says to Jesus, I believe, help me in my unbelief. What kind of faith is that? It's a weak faith. It's a faith that is wavering. But it is a faith that is turned toward God. He said, Lord, I don't have all the belief that I would like to have. God, I am doubting right now. I believe you, but help me in my unbelief. When my belief quotient is empty, when it is low, help me in my unbelief. If you find yourself doubting, I want you to turn to a brother or sister in Christ. But most importantly, I want you to turn to God Himself. To say to the Lord, help me in my unbelief. Third. Excuse me. Third. Brothers and sisters, we are in the wilderness. We have not yet reached that promised place of rest. We are a church in the wild, waiting for the final day of rest to come. Hold fast to your confession. These are troubling, trying times. Our faith will be tested. Our lives will face hardship. But remember, God's promise of rest still remains. Look ahead to that glorious day when we will be in the presence of God. The walk of faith is one that looks forward and backward. But all of our present circumstances are always understood in light of what comes ahead. That glorious day, that eternal city that awaits our arrival when all sin and death will be gone, when all uh, concern will be gone, and instead we will be able to enjoy God forever. That is what we've been longing for. Even if you do not number yourself among those who are the people of God, you have been longing for that. And you can only find it in the promise that God holds out for us. This is where peace and rest and mercy and justice can be found. But what can we do if after examining our hearts, this is the fourth thing, if after examining our hearts, we find that we have indeed disobeyed God and have allowed unbelief to harden our hearts, is there any hope for us who have not believed? Yes. Today, the text says, do not harden your hearts, but instead look to the one who offers hope. In the verses that follow, in the sermon that will follow next week, the author of Hebrews will offer us an image of Jesus as our high priest. The one who knew no sin but offered himself for our sin. The one who, in whom those of us who are deserving God's wrath and, wrath and judgment instead receive love and fellowship with God when we place our trust in Jesus. Look to him who said to his disciples... Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Heavy from trial, tired from losing in our battle to sin. Come to me, Jesus says, and I will give you rest. The rest that God has promised, the rest of God that remains, that belongs to the people who believe in Jesus the one who is able to be merciful and just toward us and forgives us our sin and disobedience. Believe in Jesus, trust in God, and obey his word, and you will enter into the rest promised by God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness. And Father God, we thank you for Jesus who has provided a way for us to deal with our sin and disobedience, who who offers us mercy and compassion, and who knows our very weakness. And because of the work that you, O God, have done, our rest still remains. Help us, Lord, to long for that day and to strive toward that day as we live this life In full obedience to you, we pray these things in the name of your Son Jesus Christ. Amen. At this time, if the men would come forward, we will celebrate Lord's Supper, Communion. We begin.